Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So today we're going to look at Acts 4, the end of the chapter there, 23 to 37. We're in part 9 of our series in Acts, and we've been talking about the book of Acts spells out God's kingdom mission for the church. And so we're reminding ourselves each week that the book of Acts really isn't about the church primarily, it's about God. And we saw from chapter 1 that the book of Acts spells out Jesus bringing his kingdom through his people, the church. But we remind ourselves time and time again that this is really not the acts of the apostles, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the acts of God and Christ through his people. So last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 4 and we saw that Peter and John, the apostles, were arrested for declaring salvation in the name of Jesus If you remember, they stood before the council, the great Sanhedrin, and the great council was marveling at these uneducated and ordinary men. And today we're going to see that the aftermath of them being brought before the council and told to be quiet, do you remember that? The council said, hey, would you guys shut up? Would you quit with all of this Jesus stuff? Quit preaching and teaching and healing in his name. And we're going to see the response of that today. We saw that Peter and John both said, we can't stop. We cannot stop. We have seen and heard things. The resurrected Jesus is with us through his spirit. And we are not going to be able to contain ourselves. So we're going to see the the rest of this story, this fascinating story at the end of chapter 4. And then next week, we're going to hit pause on Acts and celebrate the resurrection. So come back, celebrate Easter Sunday with us next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every single word in scripture. We thank you, Jesus, that you teach us your word. You bring us to yourself into living contact through your word in the power of the spirit. And we ask for that today. Cause our hearts to burn with truth and love. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Acts 4, 23 to 37, I'm going to read these verses. And then we're going to see two clear, basic things in this passage. We're going to see in the first part, verses 23 through 31, that the church, the believers, are praying for boldness. And then the second part of the passage, verses 32 through 37, shows them giving generously and taking care of the poor. So I'm going to read this whole section. After they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, Who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. It is you who by the Holy Spirit, through our ancestor David, your servant, said this. 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So as I said, there's two main things here. The first is praying for boldness. Look at verse 23. Peter and John are reporting back to their friends. As I mentioned, they were in court, in religious court, before the Jewish leaders just a few days before, and now they're coming back to their friends to report what they had heard from the Sanhedrin. Basically, shut up and quit talking about Jesus and acting in his name. And look at what their response is. When their friends heard the report, They called out to God in prayer. So as I was looking at this this week, I was thinking, how do we respond when the pressure is on? When the pressure is on you, how do you respond? Do you turn to God in prayer? Or do you moan and groan? Frankly, Amanda and I have moaned and groaned at different times and we've not respond, responded in prayer to tough times. I've shared openly about our desert season in Georgia when we were there for seven years and we were in tough times and we were being squeezed by our circumstances and oftentimes, I hate to admit it, but we took not prayer walks, but groaning walks, complaining walks. And we would look at each other and it would be beautiful and sunny outside but cloudy in our minds and hearts, and we would say, you want to take a walk? And inevitably, on those walks, one of us would start going down the road of complaining and bickering and reminding one another of how terrible our circumstances were. Anybody else do those kinds of walks? Maybe strolling around the house, maybe in your car. The early church gives us a model. It need not be that way. 
Heck, their lives were on the line. It wasn't just bad circumstances, but they were being threatened. They were being thrown in jail. And this is their response. When they were squeezed, they came together. They were unified. They prayed. This was the effect of the beginning of persecution against the church. We talked about this chapter and the next chapter. And from then on in this story, the book of Acts, they're going to be persecuted for the name of Jesus for sharing the gospel, for healing in his name. This prayer that's here in verses 24 and following is an example for all time. Look how rich it is theologically. Look at verse 24. What's the name that they use when they appeal to God? What's it say there? It's two words. This would tie in with what Kelly was saying, encouraging us. Lord, show us something about yourself. Will the church turn to who? The sovereign Lord. It's interesting, the word here is actually related to the word despot. It's despota, but it's not negative. When we hear the word despot, what do we think? Despotic, we think of kind of a tyrannical leader. Well, the actual word was neutral. It meant the supreme ruler. It meant the master of the house. And so the early church was turning to the master of the house. All of creation is his. And the early church, rather than complaining or fretting or wringing their hands, when they're squeezed, they say, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, you are in control. You are the Lord over all creation, and we can trust you. Friends, this is a God-centered perspective. I don't know about you, but... What gets me out of some of the most excruciating moments when I am in the squeeze is a God-centered perspective. Amen? So I really don't need platitudes of, hey, it's going to be okay, Brock, or the Lord will end up blessing you after the... What I need to do is get on my face and remind myself, you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. And then somehow things fall into place. Do you agree? that when things are really desperate, really bleak, you need to remind yourself that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. That's what the early church tells us. And then look what else they go on to say. The latter part of verse 24, they lay out three things. He's the God of creation who made heaven and earth. You made it all and you rule over it all. Friends, they were God-intoxicated people. They were God-centered. They understood that God was on his throne, that Christ was seated at his right hand, and they could trust God with their very lives. Look at what else. Verse 25 says, not only is he the God of creation, not only is he the sovereign Lord, but he's the God of revelation. Verse 25, he's the God who speaks by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of his servant David. Look at what this text is here. As we're seeing over and over again, when the early church, when the apostles speak, it's rooted in Scripture. This is another one of those texts here. This is Psalm 2, which was very popular in the early church. They viewed it as a messianic psalm. In its original context, Psalm 2 was written, and it was addressing King David probably at the coronation of his kingship. 
But now it takes on new meaning. It's ultimately fulfilled in this kind of messianic application. Jesus has been raised and anointed, and now he is king, ruling not over just Israel, but all of the nations. And the church is reminding themselves, you are the God of history, you're the God of creation, you're the God of revelation. Look at verses 27 through 28. got ahead of myself a little bit there, but... He is the God of history. Look at what the text says. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, the council that we've just stood before, all of these people have gathered together against you, against Jesus, and against us. But look at the end of verse 28. These guys are doing what your plan and your power had predestined to take place. Friends, he is the God of history. And the early church reminded themselves of this in a moment where it looked really bad. It was dark. They said, Lord, even these enemies can be your instruments. You use even those who oppose Jesus to further your purposes. Friends, this is the God we serve. This is the God they served. The God of creation, revelation, and history. I want to ask you, do you pray this way? Do you want to pray this way? Do you want your prayer life altered and changed? I certainly do. Examples like this are key. Church, let's lift up our gaze to the God of heaven. Let's pray God-centered prayers. Like the song was saying, let's get lost in the majesty of God. Friends, that's my role, is to remind you of who he is. I've said it many times. I could find kind of easy, simple sermons and encourage you and pat you on the back and tell you that God likes you and wants to give you a blessed life. And all those things are good, but my role is is to remind you of who God is, to give you a glimpse once a week, whenever I get to, of how awesome and amazing and majestic and holy and trustworthy he is. That's my role. And that's your role as well, with your friends, with your family, with your kids. Give them a glimpse of the greatness of God. Look at what happens after they pray this, verses 29 through 30. After the first part, of their prayer, they pray these things. They say, look, Lord, at verse 29, Lord, notice their threats. Recognize their threats. Acknowledge what they're doing, that they're telling us to stop speaking about Jesus or else. And what do they say, church? Give us boldness to speak more. Isn't that interesting? They're saying, Be quiet, Peter and John. Be quiet, church. And they're saying, Lord, give us boldness. Fill us with courage and confidence. Turn it up. Pour more gasoline on us, Lord, so that we might speak your word, speak the gospel, speak the good news about the kingdom of God. But it doesn't just end there. Look at what the text says at verse 30. Might make us a little bit uncomfortable if this doesn't fit in our theology. Maybe you're visiting today and you're not accustomed to hearing something like this at verse 30. Not only give us boldness, but Lord, stretch out your hands. 
stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. Friends, this is the New Testament gospel. It's both. It is boldness and courage and confidence to speak the gospel, but also to demonstrate the gospel, to plead with God, Lord, don't let it just be words, but let it be action, just like Jesus. Proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Friends, this is what the text says. And for some reason, the American church loses sight of this at different times. We like the word part. Lord, help us speak more effectively. Anoint us to teach and preach. But the signs and wonders and miracles, do we really have to do that? Friends, the book of Acts gives at least 18 accounts of miracles and signs and wonders being performed in the name of Jesus. It's not my opinion. It's not your opinion. It's the New Testament. It's the way the church is supposed to be, proclaiming the word with boldness and courage and asking the Lord to perform signs and wonders through ordinary people like us. The whole list here of things, it's miracles, it's signs, it's wonders, and the point of all of those words is God's mighty acts that reveal his power and who he is, what he's done and what he does through the name of Jesus. Probably different extremes to avoid when looking at a passage like this, but one of them is God doesn't perform signs and wonders and miracles. We read a passage like this, and we think that this was the case, this was so, with the apostles, but it died out. After the first century, God quit performing signs and wonders and miracles. We now have his written word, and so signs and wonders and miracles have ceased. What do you think about that? The doctrine of cessationism. Some of us come from that perspective. I did, until I started reading the Bible with fresh eyes as a young man at 17, and I said, I don't get it. I can't find the verse in the New Testament that says God quit healing and performing miracles. Have you been able to find that verse? Maybe you can text it to me or email me. I can't find it anywhere. I find that this is the, the example of examples for the church, the model, the blueprint for the church for all time. And it's preaching the word with boldness and God healing and performing miracles there's another extreme to avoid, and that is that we should expect miracles 24-7. Now, bear with me for a minute, because some of you will say, well, you don't sound very hopeful. You don't sound very filled with faith, but I think you know where I'm coming from, and it's the exaggerated nature of people's stories, and they frankly make up miracles, and you're like, that's probably not a miracle. That's, it just happened that way. So I, I want to be cautious here. But really what I, I'm saying is let's have a wise perspective on this. Let's pray as the early church did, believing with full confidence that God still stretches out his hand and heals and performs signs and wonders and miracles when he chooses to. Right? We don't need to spice it up and frankly, I've seen that before where people exaggerate 
they add a little hamburger helper to the story. And you know what? God does not need that. And that's one of the values in the vineyard is we believe this firmly because the book says it. God heals. God does these things, but we don't have to sensationalize it at all. Amen, church? So these are two extremes. And we do. Hear me on this. I'm not putting cold water on your faith. God may, heck, God may say, you know what? You shouldn't have said that. I do perform miracles 24-7. And I'll repent of that. But I think you hear my heart behind that. Is we pray and we put it in God's hands. As I was looking at this, was reading in a fantastic book. If you want to have your mind messed up a little bit, there's a book called Miracles by Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R. It's two volumes. And this scholar, former atheist, has devoted the last 35 years of his life to writing commentary on scripture and to researching modern miracles because it's something that he didn't believe before. And so I was thumbing through that book and every time I do, there's something that leaps out and grabs a hold of me. And sure enough, over the weekend, there was something that leapt out at me from this book called Miracles. And he was writing in there. He surveys every continent. He interviews people all over the world from different churches. And he says this about the Chinese church. He says that based on his research and other Chinese scholars and theologians, 90% of the Chinese Christians that convert to Jesus, say that it was due to a healing miracle. Did you hear me? 90% of the people from all walks of life in China that are coming to faith in Christ do that because they saw the power of Jesus. Friends, out on the frontiers of mission life, where the gospel is advancing, where people don't have churches on every corner, God is performing miracles. So we have something to learn from the Asian church, from the Chinese church in particular. Let's pray passages like this. Lord, fill us with boldness and stretch out your hand to perform signs and wonders and heal folks in the name of Jesus. You with me on that? So we can expect God to work miracles. And I'm preaching to myself this morning big time. Preaching to myself, pray for more people. Brock, why don't you pray for more people and give God an opportunity? I need to. And I'm doing some things in my life right now. Spending time with certain people that make me uncomfortable and pray for people like Brian Blount. Some of you know Brian from Crestwood Vineyard. The dude lives this stuff. Every time we go to lunch, we're meeting this week, he ends up praying for someone. And the Lord touches them and he leads people to Jesus Wherever we go, we're at the Thai restaurant. I look up, he ends up in the kitchen in the back praying for the staff at the Thai restaurant, laying hands on them and, okay, who here has, who's got the shoulder problem? Lays hands on them. Next thing I know, someone's crying and it's unbelievable. He believes what's being prayed here. I think it's also important in a text like this to have theology, a theology of the kingdom that helps us explain when God doesn't heal. Again, another reason we have joined the vineyard movement is because they have 
a theology of the kingdom, the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God that helps us deal with things like this. I would encourage you to pray for people as often as you can. And if they need healing, ask. Lord, I pray that you would heal this person in the name of Jesus. I speak healing in the name of Jesus to this person. But friends, it's not up to you. It's not up to me. The load is lifted off our shoulders. You don't have to pray the right prayer. You don't have to twist God's arm. You just do what the book says, and that is pray for the sick. Leave it in his hands. If he chooses to heal, glory to God. If he doesn't, you don't have to sweat it at all. Your name, your reputation is not online. His is. Did Jesus go around healing everybody all the time? No, he didn't. John 5.19 says that he did what he saw the Father doing, and he would pray for certain people. So it is with us. We pray for certain people and leave it up to him. Much more we could say and learn about this, and I'm sure in the coming days the Lord has all kinds of things to teach us about this. Look at what happens when they pray. God answers three different ways at verse 31. Look at it. The place where they had gathered together was shaken. This is like theophanies in the Old Testament. That's our big theological word for the day. A theophany was an appearance of God. When Yahweh showed up on the scene, things shook. You can look at this later, but in Exodus 19, when Yahweh came and gave the law to Moses, the mountain shook. This is another one of those moments. Something is shaking. Something is happening. Isaiah 6, 4 when Isaiah sees into the heavenly temple and they're declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the temple shakes. Friends, they prayed and God shook stuff. I'm sure that that was pretty sobering. I actually got a text from someone recently that they had been praying along this line. I think you prayed for a sign, is that right? Jay Barnett had something happen and it wasn't the place shaking but the Lord answering a specific prayer maybe he can explain that at some point but all I know is the building shook it was shaken in response to prayer and then what happened they were all filled with the Holy Spirit I thought that happened in chapter 2 do you remember that chapter 2 they were filled with the Holy Spirit here we are a couple chapters later after some persecution, after the squeeze is on them, they're being filled with Holy Spirit again. There's an ongoing need in reality. I've mentioned it before, we leak. Anybody else leak? So we need to be filled with the Spirit regularly. And then look at what the result is here. They speak the word of God with boldness. Friends, when the Holy Spirit comes upon his church, when the Spirit of God touches you and me, we're transformed, we're emboldened, and he missionizes us. You ever heard that word? To missionize. We're put on mission with Jesus. The Spirit of God touches us, not just to make us feel better or give us relief, but to send us out into the world to serve on mission with Jesus. Let's look quickly here at the second part. Not only are they praying for boldness, 
seeing the infilling of the Holy Spirit, things shaking, but the believers give generously. Look at verses 32 through 37. He begins by describing their unity. They're united in heart and soul. And then he begins to spell out what generous care looks like for the early church. They're not claiming any private ownership of their possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. We're going to look a little more at that because I know that raises all kinds of questions. But what Luke is interweaving here is how they pressed into prayer. They sought God, and God gave them great grace and power to care for one another, to care for the poor. Friends, this is holy ground. Are we a church that cares for one another and cares for the poor the way that the Lord wants us to? What do you think? I think we're on our way. I get these reports from David and their team and they're going out and reaching people and I hear stories of you serving one another but I think the Lord wants us to grow and mature in this area so that we're caring for one another and then it spills out into our neighborhoods and our communities and we're on fire with boldness but we're also on fire with love and compassion for other people. Friends, this is not Christian communism. The scriptures say in the Old Testament that the Lord loves the poor. Psalm 140, verse 12. Listen to what David says. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Jesus preached this, didn't he? We see it in Luke 4, 18 and 19. Jesus says, I came to bring the gospel to who? To the poor. The Father loves the poor. Jesus loves the poor. The church is loving the poor here. We're called to love and care for those in need. But what's key here? Because I know that you're probably wondering, this was voluntary. This was not mandatory. As I said, this is not a picture of Christian communism, as some might wrongly suggest. They were not forced to give up their possessions or anything. This was the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Do you see it? Not a human mandate or a political agenda. They owned land and freely sold it and freely gave it. It's what they're doing. We'll see later on in the book, if you don't believe me and you think that the text is saying something different, in chapter 12, Mary, the mother of Jesus, owns a house and she hasn't sold it and deliver the money, the proceeds to the apostles? Maybe not yet. So this is not Christian communism. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people that God has blessed with things and they're moved to sell things progressively in order to care for the poor. Friends, I'm proud of you. Many of you are like that. Some of us need to grow, frankly, in being generous and caring for others. I've mentioned it in past weeks. I even jokingly said, Wallace, why don't you do the message on giving? Kind of delegated that to him because it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But I've got to admit, 
I have not done a very good job of encouraging our church to lean in and grow in this arena. To say, Lord, would you give us a heart for the poor? And I'm not just talking about donations and tithing. I'm talking about the kind of heart that the church had. That your heart breaks for the poor and the needy. It's a whole different level. And I can do a better job of that. I can grow in my own generosity. I look at texts like this and I'm stirred. Are you? Do you want the Lord's heart for the poor? For the marginalized? For those in in need? I certainly want our church to walk more and more in that reality. And if that doesn't make us feel uncomfortable, then I'm going to say this too. Maybe you're sitting there wondering, I don't know if I have a heart for the poor. Maybe I do. I don't know if I'm a generous giver. John Wimber used to say, take out your checkbook and look at it. That'll tell you real quick. Do I have a heart for the poor? Am I generous? Am I a giver? Some hard data there. Looking at you again, I am not saying write checks to All Saints Church. You might do that as we grow in giving to the poor, but I'm saying is this a priority in your life? There are all kinds of organizations that you can give to and through. Again, we're growing as a church in this arena. But do we have a heart for the poor like the early church did? This sets us up here for chapter 5. If you look at the end of the chapter here, verse 36, a guy named Barnabas is mentioned. And he's got a nickname from the apostles, son of encouragement. And what's interesting, if you notice here, he's selling some of the things that belong to him. He's entrusting it to the apostles so that the apostles can go and take care of folks in the church and probably other relatives who are losing their jobs and livelihood because they're Christians and no longer employed by certain folks. So Barnabas is a good example of this. But then we'll see in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. I'm actually going to walk us through that in a couple of weeks. We're going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and they are the opposite of Barnabas. Barnabas is moved with a heart for the poor and for the church and for the needy, and then we're going to see Ananias and Sapphira are the opposite. They're secretly greedy like Judas, and they actually lie to God and to the Holy Spirit, and it becomes a sobering message for the church for all time. Don't mess with money. Don't lie to God. And again, I want to make sure that we're hearing clearly here. I'm not laying any burdens on you. I'm asking you, as I'm asking myself, to search your heart in this. This is something that Wallace and I talk about regularly, is having, Lord, would you give us integrity? Would you entrust us with resources so that we can give it all away? Don't we, Wallace? And that is something that we desire I'm actually going to share something. Wallace is foregoing his salary right now, just so you know that. He is serving the church, and this is so in his heart. I think he's a model, an example for us. I know that 
probably makes him feel uncomfortable. But I think we need palpable models right now. And friends, we've got some of you are radical in your heart for giving and generosity. And I commend you. And I think that is amazing. And I want more of that. But I do think in the coming days, the Lord is going to give us a spirit of generosity and we're going to be a conduit of his resources. I look at other churches that are years and years and years in their kingdom service and the Lord entrusts them as long as they're good stewards. And that's what we want.